So Paul wants to make sure that the Corinthians know that God has chosen them, not because they are so great, but because God is great. This is a huge point that he's trying to make with this. But I think we can look from uh, another angle, angle as well. So I would argue that one cannot be a believer. One cannot give their life to Christ without also becoming a disciple. So if you're a believer in my heart, in my mind, you've got to be a disciple also. They're, they're one in the same. We are called to follow him. We are called to serve him. We're called to share the good news, the gospel of Christ. So Paul captures that sentiment and our attention with this phrase in the title of today's sermon is consider your calling. What are you called to do? You're not called to be holier than everybody else. You're called to be a disciple, to serve him, to deliver the message of the gospel of grace. That's what you're supposed to do. And we have that same calling. If we've given ourselves to Christ, we are also disciples. We have a calling as well. But many of us, like the Corinthians did, many of us don't feel too haughty about delivering the gospel of Christ to people, do we? And I think, I think, I think that the general feeling among most disciples today is that we are unqualified, right? Unprepared, under-equipped. We're not significant enough or wealthy enough or wise enough or anything else enough to be a disciple, right? Do, am I, do, I, do I get that kind of? You know, no matter how much you spend in scripture, how many times you've prayed, sharing the gospel is always kind of hard for us. But Paul ensures us of this fact um, and as he continues, he says, you know, we aren't wise according to the world. You aren't mighty. You aren't noble. That we are among the foolish things of the world. Well, think about it for a second. What does the world consider to be wise? If we were in Sunday school, I'd have you brainstorm a little bit and shout out some things. But being wise, I mean, how many degrees I have, the, the initials after my name, right? Um, how many certificates I have hanging on my wall, uh, those types of things, how wise I am, how many books I've read, how many, how many times I've read through the Bible, right? Wise, according to the world. Powerful. Look at what's happened with people who think they're powerful according to the world. Look what we have now. It's crazy out there. Noble. Same thing. What is noble according to the world? And is it any different for those followers of Christ? Well, there's a purpose for God using these people and for Paul reminding them that they are foolish people. And that is to put the shame the wise. We have a section verses 27 through 29. What is God saying here? Are we to value being foolish? Are we to value being undereducated and weak? I, I don't think so. You're like, oh, finally, right? <laughs> no. He's saying that worldly power, worldly wisdom, and esteem, those things, those worldly views of those things, wise wisdom, power, and nobility, those do not bring salvation. You know, God uses the lowly. He uses others as well, but he always seems to start with the lowly, right? First the shepherds, then the wise men, right? First fishermen, just general everyday people, then Paul, extremely educated, zeal for the Lord, he persecuted Christians, but he came around eventually, right? So we're not to value being foolish or uneducated or weak. 
Paul is talking about the grassroots effort that Christianity really is. So in business, there's this theory of trickle-down. We've heard it in economics and business, all those types of things, that where there's a cascading effect where a leader's trait, their cognition, their effect, their attitude and behavior, all of that kind of trickles down to induce similar responses in the groups below them. That's trickle-down in a nutshell, right? That's not what Christianity is. Subordinates learning from higher-level leaders In God's grassroots gospel, it is the lowly and the unimportant that recognize what the world is missing. They hear God's call, they obey, and they lead. Think about it. How did Christianity become a worldwide religion? Do we give 100% of the credit to Emperor Constantine for initiating the evolution of the Roman Empire into a Christian state after his conversion experience in 313 AD? Or do we credit the apostles, the martyrs, and the countless persecuted regular Christians that paved the way to that point, the grassroots effort? Olhausen, a German philosopher and theologian, put it this way. The ancient Christians were, for the greater part, slaves, and persons of humble rank. The whole history of the progress of the church is in fact a gradual triumph of the unlearned over the learned, of the lowly over the great, until the emperor himself cast his crown at the foot of Christ's cross. It's interesting too, this would remind me when I've said, you know, God is trying to remove the idol the idols of wisdom, worldly wisdom and and worldly power and worldly nobility. He's trying to remove them so that the glory goes to him alone. If you remember back in 1 Samuel, one of my favorite instances of um, regarding the Philistines is when they, they steal the Ark of the Covenant and they put it in their temple with right next to their, their idol um, Dagon, right? Or Dagon. And what happens? First time Dagon's statue falls down. Well, they put it back up again. Next day, Dagon's statue is fa- had fallen down and all of his, his limbs and his, his head had fallen off. God loves to bring the idol worship of worldly wisdom and foolish pride crashing to the floor, just like that idol of the Philistines. He loves to do it. So now that we know what spiritual wisdom is not, it's not worldly wisdom, well, what is it? So what's considered wise? Well, Paul states just before our reading, what Jim read today, he says, but we preach Christ crucified. This is a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. Christ crucified. It's kind of an oxymoron to the world, isn't it? Christ, you're supposed to be a conquering king, the savior of the world, and yet he was crucified on a cross. Okay, it had to happen but it seems kind of like it doesn't make any sense. It is. It's strange. It's, it's a little scandalous, isn't it? It's unexpected. When you read through the gospel story, you get to the part where he, he breathes his last, Jesus breathes his last on the cross, and you want more. Thankfully, there is more, right? There's an empty tomb along with the cross. What do we have without this strange and scandalous truth. 
It's been said, um, let every pulpit rightly say, we preach Christ crucified. And this goes along with the story. So once there was a strong church that once inscribed these words on an archway leading into the churchyard, we preach Christ crucified. Over time, two things happened. The church lost its passion for Jesus and his gospel, and the ivy began to grow on the archway. The growth of the ivory covering the message showed the spiritual decline. Originally, it said strongly, we preach Christ crucified, but as the ivy grew, one could only read, we preach Christ. And the church also started preaching Jesus the great man and Jesus the moral example instead of Christ crucified. The ivy kept growing, and one could only soon read, we preach. The church also had even lost Jesus in the message, preaching religious platitudes, social graces. Finally, one could only read, we. And the church also became another social gathering place, all about we and not about God. Friends, Paul is trying to remind us through this passage, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, that salvation is not about what we can do, not, what, not about what, what degrees we have, what leadership roles we obtain, or the amount of money in our portfolios. It's not, about what God, it's not about that at all. It's about what God did on the cross out of the great love for us. It's about Christ crucified. We end with this theme of boasting in the Lord. This is why God does this. This is why he chooses ordinary people. We need help with this, don't we? We have a tendency to focus on people or an object instead of the God behind it. Our fickle hearts see the created, but not the creator. God is doing this for our benefit. So let's summarize the scripture a little bit. Three major points here. God uses humble people of lowly estate to show the world how little our worldly wisdom contributed to the success of his cause. It is his delight to work in and through people who see his power, wisdom, and strength, his power, wisdom, and strength, rather than their own. It brings him joy to use ordinary people and ordinary things for his glorious purposes so that his great power can be revealed. And I think the most poignant is that this means that he can and he will use you. Even you. Yeah, I'm looking at everybody. Eyes. <laughs> so example time. How can God use ordinary people with ordinary things to do his extraordinary work? I've got three examples for you. In Exodus 4, we see Moses and his staff. So in this, these next few examples, I'm just going to talk about a brief character description about the object that they have or use and how God used them. So Moses and his staff. So Moses, most of us know Moses. It's been said that he's probably the most recognizable character in the Bible other than Jesus himself, right? The great redeemer Moses. So he was born a Hebrew from the tribe of Levi, while the Israelites were in Egypt, Pharaoh had ordered all the boy babies to be killed to control the growing population of Israelites. He was afraid. He was fearing his mother, uh, Moses' mother, feared for his life. So 
he hid, or she hid Moses into reeds on the bank of the Nile. He was rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter couldn't nurse, so she has to hire somebody to nurse Moses. And in something only God could design, who does he hire or who does she hire but Moses' mother? So Moses is raised as royalty. He made a mistake. He became a murderer. And he was a fugitive. He ran away. So what about the staff that Moses has and he carries with him? Well, the staff is just a shepherd's tool, a stick. Um, I'm reminded of the sticks my son Cooper, we would go hiking. And my son would always find like the most gigantic stick in the woods to use as his walking stick. It was bigger than him. It actually hindered him more than helped him. But man, did he look like Moses when he carried it. It was awesome, you know? And we would always leave them um, at the end of the trail because it's just a stick, right? And same thing with Moses. But, but God has something in mind for both Moses and for this stick. So at the burning bush, God speaks to Moses and decides to use what Moses already had, something ordinary, something familiar to him. It's probably worn where he had his hands grasped around it while he was hiking through the terrain, right? So God asks Moses to toss the staff on the ground and turns it into a snake and then turns it back again. It was a sign that, yes, this is God. This is Yahweh. This is Jehovah. Okay, follow me. So Moses repeats this sign when he and Aaron confront Pharaoh for the first time. The staff is the instrument that Moses uses to change the Nile's water into blood, infest the land with frogs and gnats, to bring hail, to bring locusts, to divide the waters and the Red Sea, to bring forth water from a rock, to beat back the Amalekites. This was quite the stick. Cooper's like, oh, I wish my stick could do that. <laughs> quite the stick, isn't it? Well, What's going on here? How did God use Moses? Well, the story of Moses in summary is that this Jewish boy who was born into slavery ends up leading the Israelites out of their slavery in Egypt and onward into their new homeland. He was close with God. He was a leader. He was a lawgiver. He was a mediator. He was a redeemer. Chosen by God to deliver his people from slavery, we see in Moses a type of Christ. The Israelites became slaves of Egypt and begged God for years to remove their oppression. God chose Moses to be the leader of the Exodus. In this way, Moses became the redeemer for those chosen people. He led them out of bondage to the promised land. In the same way, Jesus Christ came to earth to free us from the bondage of sin, thus becoming the greater redeemer our redeemer, Moses, and his stick. Rahab, everybody knows Rahab, hopefully. Rahab's scarlet cord. So who was Rahab? Well, before crossing over the river Jordan into Canaan, Hebrew spies had come to scout the city for Joshua. Rahab had heard about the gospel of Israel, or the, excuse me, the God of Israel, and hosted and hid these spies for a time in her home. She told the spies of the fear of the people of Jericho that they had of Israel and their God. She says to the spies, our hearts have melted in fear and everyone's courage has failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Well, instead of cowering in fear, 
Rahab channeled this fear and turned it into faith. And she decides to hide these spies. Rahab chooses not fear, but chooses God's side. Rahab puts her faith in God, not in the walls of Jericho in which she lived. So what about this cord? So Rahab uses this scarlet cord to lower the spies from her window in the wall of Jericho to the ground below. You can almost imagine her and the spies having a conversation like Rahab turns them and says, we got to get you out of here. How are we going to do this? Well, we can't go out the front door. There's people watching. What about the window? Well, uh, I got to get you down. Um, Here, take this. And she just grabs the closest thing next to her, a scarlet rope, a red rope. Just a rope. Well, God uses Rahab to use that cord to lower the Hebrew spies to the ground so that they could return home. So she saves the Hebrews, saves the Jews first, right? That same cord is used to redeem Rahab and her family. They come up with a plan that she is to hang that cord in the window when Joshua and his army come and invade the city. And sure enough, Joshua saves Rahab and her family because he sees this sign, this, this sign of safety, this scarlet cord. This cord points to a greater deliverance. The scarlet cord of scripture tells us of redemption through Jesus who hung on the cross. Just as a scarlet cord hung from the window so that we could safely come, come before the throne of God, through Christ alone, we are saved from sin. So her courage, her resourcefulness, and faith are rewarded with the honor of being placed in the genealogy of Jesus. She was the mother of Boaz, Boaz and Ruth, the son of Obed, the son of Jesse, the son of David. Pretty awesome. And she also appears in Hebrews 11. The uh, whole chapter is a, is a hall of faith, and Rahab is in there as well. It's just Rahab. She was a prostitute. In, in, in uh, Jericho with a red cord. And God used her for really great purposes. So my third and final, my favorite example because of how obscure it is, is Shamgar's ox goad. We don't know much about Shamgar. There's certain chapters in Judges that are devoted to, uh, it's whole chapters devoted to ju- uh, certain Judges. There's only one verse about Shamgar. Maybe two if you count Deborah's song. There's not a lot. We don't know about much about him. But just a little bit of background for this. A judge was more than our current understanding of someone that administers judges, uh, judgment or passes sentences or settles cases. It really meant to rule or to command. So Shamgar, the son of Anath, was mentioned in only two verses. His name actually is... Ironic, it means stranger. Here is a stranger. So he serves as judge three out of the 12 and is kind of a contemporary just before or a contemporary of Deborah. So around that same time. His name, Shamgar, suggests that he might not have been Hebrew either. So Shamgar is not a Hebrew name and Anath is a Canaanite goddess. So he's possibly the son of mixed Hebrew and Canaanite marriage. All the other judges are associated with the tribe of Israel. You can see why this is my favorite. It's a pretty obscure, regular person. 
He was a farmer. He was plowing the fields with an ox. That's all. In that time, Philistine marauders were plentiful. So the Philistines on the coast would make incursions into the Hebrew upland and plunder the villages. The roads around them, in Deborah's song we learn about this, the roads were dangerous, and the small Israelite communities in the area lived in constant fear. This is the time of Shamgar. So what's an ox goad? Do you know? It's a stick. (laughs) And that's all. So... Usually, it's a stick about 8 to 10 feet long. It's On one end, it's got a sharpened point to nudge the ox along or to change direction. On the other end, it's kind of flattened and curved, and it acts as a mini shovel to kind of clean off that plow. Um, it's Sometimes they have like a metal point, but it's unlikely at this time that Shamgar had one with a metal point. It was just a stick. What does he do with this? How does he use, how does God use good old Shamgar and his stick? Well, Shamgar ends up killing 600 Philistines with this one ox goad. Well, you're like, well, that's kind of gruesome. Well, Shamgar, God had used Shamgar to save Israel from just being bombarded by these Philistines all the time. God had a plan to, um, deliver them from the Philistines so they wouldn't be under constant fear and oppression by them. And he did so with one man and one stick. The spirit fell upon him so he could accomplish God's will for him and for God's people. He was just a man of faith empowered by God to do a great thing. It's interesting, you can just picture him the day that this happened. There's all sorts of theories about, well, 600 seems like a lot. You know, like, maybe it was one or two at a time, or maybe he had a group of people. I don't know. I like to take it for face value. I like to think that Shamgar was plowing his field, just like any other day, and over the hill, he saw a band of raiders, Philistine raiders, come in, in, 600 of them. He looks at them, he looks behind them at the settlements below, and he said, you know what? Not today. Not today. He looks at his ox goad, and he marches straight into the fray. That's what I believe happened. An ordinary man used for extraordinary purpose because the Holy Spirit enabled him to do something. There's others. I mean, you got Samson and a donkey jawbone. You've got David with a strap of leather and some stones. You got fishermen and their nets. You got Matthew, the writer of the gospel, and his just ability to organize and write. You've got Paul and his study of the Old Testament and an old tattered Torah in his hand, right? Think of the people that we have going on here. We've got an abandoned baby adopted by royalty who murdered someone and ran away into the wilderness. We've got a prostitute, a farmer, a young shepherd boy, fisherman, a tax collector, a foreman Christian persecutor. You think that's funny? Think of the resources God gives to them. A staff, a piece of scarlet fabric, an ox goat, a jawbone, a leather strap and stones, nets, a jawbone, pen and paper, an old copy of the Old Testament. I mean, imagine those resources like heaped on a pile right here. We look like junk. We look like my garage. (laughs) Right? God uses the ordinary for the extraordinary. So that's great, Jeff. We've got some good biblical examples. What about today? 
Well, it's interesting, um, when, I, when Mitch asked me to do the sermon, I said, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And he's like, well, you have to use a movie reference. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't say it, but I, I do have one. Um, it's interesting because next to that, uh, the verse that Jim read before, I have just two words. It's kind of unspiritual of me, but not really. It, it just has Emmett Burkowski next to it. Well, who is Emmett Burkowski? Um, way back in 2014, um, the Lego movie came out. And I must have watched that thing about a thousand times. I think we watched it three times in one day. Um, it was an awesome movie. Everything is awesome is one of the phrases in the, in the movie that's used over and over. But ordinary, average, zero to hero, Emmett Burkowski finds this piece of resistance. This, it's basically a cap to a crazy glue tube. And he's chosen to save the universe from a lord business who wants to freeze everything with a powerful relic called the crackle. Basically, it's just crazy glue. Um, it's a classic battle, though, between conformity and creativity of touch, of, excuse me, of do not touch versus change everything, of preserving what is familiar and embracing the unknown. Well, he has this piece of resistance and he's brought before these master builders and he is told to give a speech to them, to inspire them, right? Well, they're not thrilled that he is not a master builder. He's just an ordinary person. And he confirms this by this amazing speech. And it's, it just reminded me, I guess, when I read the scripture of Mr. Burkowski. He says, imagine him speaking to the master builders about to save the world. He says, it's true. I might not be a master builder. I may not have a lot of experience fighting or leading or coming up with plans or having ideas in general. In fact, I'm not all that smart. And I'm not what you'd call the creative type, plus generally unskilled, also scared and cowardly. I know what you're thinking. He's the least qualified person in the world to lead us. And you're right. So the master builders look at him and say, and the world would say to this type of attitude, this we're hopeless, right? God will look at that and say, I've got him just where I want him. He's empty and I'm going to fill him. A little bit better example. There's this guy out there in North Carolina called Mike Steinkamp. This is what's on his website. MS Skate Ministry exists simply to tell people about Jesus. Mike Steinkamp travels year-round speaking at events, as well as partnering with churches and organizations around the world hosting skateboard outreaches. MS Skate Ministry produces films that communicate powerful gospel messages in a relevant way. And we've heard countless stories of these films drawing people to Christ. We started a skateboarder's Bible study in our hometown of Wilmington called The Ramp. MS Skate Ministry is so grateful for everything that God is doing through us. And our prayer is that God would continue to use this ministry to reach people around the world with the love of Jesus. Check out his video. When I first started following Jesus, I knew that I was supposed to tell people about him. 
I just had this desire to see people in love with their creator, so I offered my life to God saying, use me wherever you see fit. That was the motive to start MSCape Ministry, and it's still the motive to this day, to give God our lives to use for His glory. Whether it be through the videos that we make, the gospel tracks that we send out, the events that we do, or the resources that we create. Whatever it is, our goal is simply to tell people the life-changing message of Jesus. This dude is a modern-day Shamgar, okay? He has a spirit of Shamgar. He loves Jesus, and he has a skateboard. He saw broken people desperate for hope and thirsty for the world and said, just like Shamgar, not today, not on my watch. On his knees, he prayed to the God he knew and obediently exclaimed, my life for your glory. Let's do this. So how can we apply the scripture we read before in these examples? Well, I encourage you to, as the title suggests and as Paul wrote, consider your calling. If you're a believer, believer, you're called to be a disciple. A disciple of Jesus is a worshiper, a service, or excuse me, a servant, and a witness. Love God, love others, follow Jesus together. Well, we can serve him if we're a nobody. In fact, I believe this is what God prefers most often. It's to help us and help the world understand that glory belongs to him alone. And he will ensure that. We can serve God with what we already have, what God has already provided us with what is familiar. We must be available for him. We must find courage in him. Moses walked toward the burning bush, not away. Rahab invited the spies into her home and deceived the king. She didn't cower in fear like the rest of the city. Shamgar saw the intruding band of Philistine marauders, and instead of running, he fought. God can and will use the extraordinary. Let me say that again, since it's the last bullet up there, it's pretty important. (laughs) God can and will use the ordinary for the extraordinary. How is he going to use this church, this ordinary church on Route 50? How is he going to use you? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the ordinary lives that we lead. In that, your Holy Spirit can fill us so that you are ultimately glorified. We pray that as we go from here today, that we're available to him and that we find courage and strength in you. We pray that the Spirit will reveal someone, something, some place that needs you. And all we have to do is just be present with whatever we have, with whatever is familiar to us. We pray this in the saving love of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen.